Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, advertising, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you doing today? Doing very well, David. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. So you're you're in a library today, you said? I am in the library uh, in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Um, they're doing construction on my street, which... Uh, they're they're trying to they're putting in a new gas line and they're they've hit a bunch of ledge so they're literally like jackhammering the entire street, which would not <laughs> is not a good look for a podcast. All right, and in our relatively quieter abode of uh, Adweek headquarters, we've got uh, staff writer and podcast producer Christina Monlos. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks. Hello. <laughs> And Lauren Johnson, a staff writer covering technology and frequent guest on the podcast. Lauren, always great to have you. Nice to be here. All right. I want to kick it off with something, uh, a a fun stat. It's going to be a surprise for, I think, all of you. I intentionally did not put this on our agenda for today. Uh, Did you know, uh, Christina, that this podcast is growing? What? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I thought you guys would uh, find it interesting that in... So the, to get all businessy, the first quarter of 2017, uh, our audience grew 97%, uh, which is fantastic. So a uh, big thank you to each of you. Uh, we launched this uh, early last fall, I want to say. And, um, you know, the audience has grown very steadily. And definitely in the last few months, we've seen a lot of growth. What has not grown as much is our reviews on uh, iTunes and on other podcast services. And those services do use those uh, reviews and ratings to kind of decide whether or not this is a podcast worth telling other people about. Normally, at the end of each episode, I, I kind of pleasantly ask people to uh, go review the podcast if you have not, because it does help a lot. I figured I'd just mention it at the top because, like I said, we have had this massive growth, uh, but our ratings have kind of stayed uh, the same in the in you know not in terms of the number of stars or whatever, but just the uh, the number of reviews. So if you haven't, if you like the show and you've been listening, uh, we'd love it if you'd go uh, spend a little time. I will be the first to admit that reviewing podcasts, like rating podcasts, is a real pain. I. I <laughs> Like not not the effort of actually like doing the review, but just physically like go. I challenge anyone to like go in from your phone and do it easily. It is it is not easy, and so I don't begrudge anyone who hasn't rated podcasts. Uh, but uh, you know, pretty easy to do from the iTunes app on your. Uh, on your laptop. Uh, but that's something I've been actually trying to review some podcasts I love, uh, and it is not as easy as you think. So big thank you again to everyone who's taken the time to do that. Uh, all right, now we're going to move on to the meat of the show. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, 
We had our power list uh, issue uh, that we run each year where we track down the 100 most powerful people in marketing, media, technology. So we're going to be talking through some of our favorite picks uh, from that one. And uh, we've also got some uh, hot controversy kind of uh, breaking as we speak. Uh, about a an ad that has gotten uh, quite a bit of heat in the social space. We'll talk about what that was and why. And uh, we're going to talk about what happened with Bill O'Reilly since our last update. He is out at Fox, as many of you probably know. But uh, we're going to talk about kind of what has come out since then. And uh, we've got a new colonel at the KFC, the hottest news. So uh, we're going to cover all that and lots more, including this week's ads worth watching. But first, the news. So uh, the kind of big ad controversy this week is Shea Moisture, uh, which is a, uh, I believe, a hair care product. As a bald man, I don't really, you know, I can't pretend to know a lot about this product. Um, but uh, they have, they were running an ad in social, uh, I think primarily on and Twitter, I would assume also on Facebook. And looking back, it seems like uh, in the last few months, this has kind of been a a burbling issue. This didn't just erupt out of nowhere, uh, but they've been trying to spread beyond their traditional audience of African-American women and move into other ethnicities. And so they put out a new ad that has uh, – it does feature uh, a black woman talking about the product, but it also features two white women pretty heavily. Uh, and so they are in there quite a bit talking about the, the woes of being a blonde woman uh, in, the, in the modern world, which did not go over well with the loyal customers for Shea Moisture. Uh, so let's listen to a little bit of that ad uh, so people can at least get a sense of what we're talking about here. It was lots of days staring in the mirror like, I don't know what to do with it. I just didn't feel like I was supposed to be a redhead. I dyed my hair blonde for seven years of my life, platinum blonde. I didn't really embrace my natural hair. Christine, on the one hand, I, I think it's obviously understandable that uh, you know a product that maybe uh, emerges in popularity among a certain demographic might want to expand beyond that. But on the, on the other hand, it seems like they really handled this uh pretty pretty ham-fistedly what did they do wrong uh in this case you mean besides equating like hair trouble as a white woman with hair with like hair issues that people have faced for decades and years and hair hate specifically that people have faced um you know for black hair is just it's so stupid like the the way that you're trying to bring in new customers obviously like expanding your market is something you'd want to do as a brand as a brand that's growing but it it almost it's almost as if you like took your core customer and you know just said like the purpose that you know we have we have had as a brand is just not as important anymore and we're going to like trivialize the way that we have served our customers i don't know it's just it's pretty bad i think a lot of the problems with this ad kind of comes back to the same issues that pepsi had a few weeks ago where i think a lot of marketers in this day and age get inside their own little brand bubble and don't truly think about how how other people are going to perceive this type of stuff when they put it out and uh, unfortunately, a lot of the backlash usually comes from digital pretty quickly. I mean, Pepsi's spot never even made it to TV. It was a TV commercial, and it didn't make it that far. 
I think, you know, the lesson from here is like you always have to bring in outside perspectives and realize how this thing is going to look to people outside of your world before you launch anything now. Well, it's also like sometimes messages that are like, we're all the same. Everything's fine. You know, white people, black people, Hispanic people, we all have the same problems. It's like such a terrible message. Like it's not necessarily true. And to ignore race is so bad as a marketer, especially when your brand is is like the inherent purpose of your brand is is so tied to race. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure this will continue to be a, a, the, a sort of topic that comes up in, in different ways, manifests in different ways as it has this time. But moving on to another big story, this happened after, like right after last week's episode. We've been talking about Bill O'Reilly uh, on Fox News for the last few weeks. And of course, uh, right after we closed last week's episode, uh, he was summarily ejected from Fox News. The executives uh, said that the decision came after an extensive review done in collaboration with outside counsel. This was obviously uh, related to the New York Times expose recently about the extent and the number of sexual harassment claims that had been uh, filed against Bill O'Reilly that had been settled uh, by Fox. And, uh, you know, he has maintained his innocence. Uh, and uh, but, you know, he has also settled. And so the, this supposed, you know, independent investigation or internal investigation uh, led to him being uh you know, not not to say quickly booted because a lot of people felt it was a slow process. But once he was out, he was out. Tucker Carlson's show got moved into the time slot a few days later. Uh, and for now, O'Reilly seems to be focusing on his podcast, uh, which is called No Spin News. Uh, there's a paywall on that. Uh, he temporarily dropped it as a way to just kind of have a, you know, a, a megaphone to talk about uh, what it was like and kind of his decisions moving forward. Uh, it's going to go back up soon to $4.99 a month or $49.99 uh, a year. So I'm sure that will kind of be uh, one of the, in addition to his book sales. And I mean, the guy's got plenty of other places to get revenue from. But I have a feeling that's going to kind of become his primary outlet. Uh, and on that on that podcast episode, our TV Newser blog has been covering all this. So if you, if you want more details, you can definitely check that out. Just look, for, you know, go on to Google, look for Adweek uh, TV Newser. But uh, on that episode, he said, I can tell you I'm very confident the truth will come out. And when it does, I don't know if you're going to be surprised, but I think you're going to be shaken as I am. There's a lot of stuff involved here. And then he made a bunch of other comments about the stuff, you know, about how they're basically this quasi conspiracy theory. Um, you, you know, Tim, what's your kind of outlook on O'Reilly's future? Like, what is he going to become this like Alex Jones kind of, you know, even farther right wing pundit? Uh, you know, in digital media or what? What's next? Well, you know, I'm I'm not uh, an O'Reilly watcher, um, but you know, this he got an enormous payout, as I understand it, to leave Fox News. So I think whatever he wants to do now, he'll be able to do. Um, he won't have the same probably audience size. Clearly, he, you know, had a pulpit to just sort of you know reach so many people. He was the for for so many years. He was the uh, the, the you know the biggest uh, viewer getter in in that time slot. Um, you know, if 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 I don't know if he if he continues with with his podcast, obviously he's gonna he's gonna have a, a way to get his views out there. Um, but I, you know, I, I think he probably does kind of slip into um, less of a prominent role, certainly uh, in in the public discourse now that he you know because that that show is just a has been a mainstay 
uh, every night, you know, for forever. And uh, he's not going to have that anymore. So he's, you know, almost by default, he's not going to have the influence that he had. Uh, you know, as far as the the allegations, I mean, I, I didn't read what he what he said about those, um, but clearly, following the Roger Ailes stuff, there's some strange things going on at Fox News for sure, and uh, I, I'd find it hard for him to to believe that he's going to be able to come out and, and prove anybody wrong, uh, considering the investigation did did lead to ex- his exit. Yeah, I mean, he's getting 25 million, so he's fine. Like. He'll be fine. Yeah, he's um, going to be fine. But also, like, I wonder if his base is going to pay $50 a year for a podcast. And, you know, if if that really is a, a, a way for him to maintain his, like, you know, pedestal, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that he'll end up, you know, whether it's on Breitbart specifically or just some digital channel like that, I think he'll find a home on something like that to be his distribution point. Um, I just think, you know, to Tim's point, it's Fox News, despite being a conservative network, is mainstream. You know, it's mainstream in a way that Breitbart is not. And, you know, I, I, I do think that this has edged him out of that mainstream. And I, I can't picture any other major news outlet picking him up at this point. Uh, so so in that sense, his role as a mainstream pundit is gone, but he's not going anywhere. He's going to be on all sorts of stuff. Christina, I'm curious, you know, it feels like with Bill Cosby and Roger Ailes and, uh, you know, and now with Bill O'Reilly, the the timeline, while it doesn't seem to necessarily be getting really fast, there just seems to be a cause and effect now where it used, it felt for a while, namely with Trump getting elected, that having these allegations against you was not enough uh, to really derail your, you know, your prospects or your ambitions. Uh, but with Ailes out, now Bill O'Reilly out. I mean, do you feel that this is going to have uh, an effect of encouraging more women to come forward? Or, I mean, what effect do you think it's going to have? Or, you know, is this just very specific to these people? No matter what, this situation is awful for any woman to be in. And, like, none of this benefits women. Like, yes, some bad men are, are being called out. But, you know... it's a case by case basis. Like I, I don't think this necessarily encourages women to be like, you know what, I'm going to speak up about this thing that could potentially ruin my life and get a bunch of people to send very mean messages to me about like, you know, whether or not I did the right thing or whether or not I like told someone to stop being terrible to me. It's like, it's it's not an easy situation and one that I hate that anyone is put into of of any gender because it it doesn't just happen to women. Um, but you know, I, I it is encouraging, I guess, that there is you know maybe a, a quicker time timeline of things. But I, I don't necessarily think this changes anything yet. Yeah, good points. Well, let's uh, move on to some uh, brighter news. I, I, I'd like to say that we're kind of done talking about Bill O'Reilly for a while, but you never know. So we'll see where we are a, a week from now. But I feel like for now, he, that's, that cycle, that storyline is essentially done uh, on, the, on the biggest scale. In uh, slightly more fun news, uh, KFC, we never, never want to miss a colonel. Uh, KFC has a new colonel. Uh, this time, they've obviously been cycling through quite a few celebrities, comics. Uh, the new one is Rob Lowe. And uh, let's listen to a little bit from his faux press conference ad where he is announcing, I believe it's called a zinger, some kind of spicy chicken sandwich, which he wants to take to space. 
Will it be worth it? We'll have to see how the camera attached to the chicken survives the launch. But there is one question that we will be able to answer with certainty very soon. Can you actually launch KFC's world-famous Zinger chicken sandwich into space? And the answer is, we certainly hope so. Our entire marketing campaign depends on it. Now, I, I have a weirdly specific... I actually really like Rublo as a as a colonel. I like that he didn't really get all crazy with the accent. Uh, so, so let's just start there. Tim, what, what's your take? Where does Rublo fit in the pantheon of KFC colonels? Uh, well, first of all, they should have gotten Bill O'Reilly to be the next colonel. That would have been <laughs> gross. Um, no, I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of this campaign, as I've said before. And I, I also have to say that when, you, when you're a marketer that's out of ideas, you shoot something into space. So that's what KFC seems to be doing here. I like Rob Lowe as well. You know, I'm a huge fan of um, West Wing going back many years. And I thought he, you know, yeah, I thought, as far as it goes, I thought he was fine in this. I just feel like the, the you know, the whole many colonels. I mean, does anyone really care who the new colonel is at this I mean, point? do the I mean, actors even care at this point? No, <laughs> like, I mean, exactly. I feel like the, and there's, the people playing the colonel just don't care. They don't. And, and it's like uh, there's almost like a self-hating aspect to this whole campaign. I, and I felt that from the very beginning of this campaign. And, you know, it's a widening Kennedy campaign. I wouldn't put it past them to, to you know, be sitting around kind of like um, scheming ways in which, you know, it could be even more self-defeating. Um, I don't know. Having said that, I, I don't know what their what their sales are like at KFC these days. Who knows? Maybe maybe all these colonels are, are doing. Something I mean, for they're the all introducing like various new chicken things. Um, so maybe maybe that's positive. I don't know, but I I am not okay with this colonel because I think that you know it's 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 winking at the his role in West Wing and you know if you're gonna choose a Rob Lowe role to wink at personally I think it should have been with a saxophone and St. Elmo's fire <laughs> man that's that's digging deep <laughs> They're gonna go Parks and Rec. No way man I mean millennials millennials don't know that movie do they yes they do uh, yes they do do they Okay. Oh God, are we back into the like debating what movies, what these movies millennials know? That's like right. a, that's a tail, tailspin we can't get out of. I mean, that's Breakfast a whole Club. podcast episode in and of itself, but for another sure. time. Yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, like I said, it, that what I like about this one is that he's not just hamming up a, I guess what's supposed to be a Kentucky accent, uh, whatever that is, you know. Um, but uh, the to Tim's point of I I think. It's maybe a little harsh to say that when you're out of ideas, you launch something into space. Uh, I mean, I think Red Bull certainly, uh, you know, had a pretty good one with dropping Felix Baumgartner out of, you know, out of space. But, uh, yeah, this idea of, like, sending and, – and I honestly don't know the the technique. Is it some kind of balloon that you basically – you send this stuff up on, you mount a camera so that it's pointing, you get it up high enough in the atmosphere that you can see, like, the Earth behind it, and it looks like it's up in space – I assume it drops back to Earth at that point. You know, you the, know if if Rob Lowe dresses up as the Colonel and free falls from near space uh, to the ground, I will. I will. We, we will name that the best out of the year. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, there was all this discussion about how like how close Felix Baumgartner came to dying, but his like expertise in in long distance. Uh, skydiving really paid off, so I'm guessing that uh, wouldn't end too well for Rob Lowe. Rob doesn't have that, no. 
All right. Um, well, yes, as much as this is is not our necessarily our favorite campaign, we do love keeping tabs on it. It's right up there to me with like Old Spice spokespeople. I just kind of need to know who at any given time is is representing them. Um, one other quick thing. This doesn't necessarily qualify as news, but uh, it's it was an interesting one with uh, graduation coming up very soon. A lot of kids are looking for jobs, looking for internships, maybe if you have or haven't graduated yet. And we had two aspiring Druga 5 interns who, uh, spoiler alert, they did score an internship, but they did it in a uh, somewhat un- unorthodox way I would call hyper-targeting. Uh, Tim, tell us what they did. Sure. Um, so this was a creative team, uh, Ben Brown and Jackie Moran, a couple students at the Miami Ad School. And they decided, as pr- probably every single advertising student does, uh, that they wanted to work at Droga 5 as, as interns. And so... Uh, instead of going through the usual channels, they decided to do a whole campaign um, targeting one person at Droga5, and that was Chloe Harlig, who's the creative coordinator over there. And she is not coincidentally in charge of deciding who gets to be interns. And so they, um, Ben and Jackie, made a whole series of videos where they, I guess essentially they looked at Chloe's Twitter feed and what she liked, um, the kind of stuff that she's into, and they made videos about that, and they are all targeted at Chloe. And... Um, yeah, I guess Chloe, I mean, we wrote a story about it, which is, I believe how Chloe ended up figuring out that they were doing this. And sure enough, they uh, were given a Skype interview the following day after our story ran. And then about a day after that, um, they were told that they would, could be interns. So, I mean, it was kind of a, you know, it's a goofy thing, obviously, but, uh, we, we've seen a fair amount of this kind of shenanigans from, from, uh, you know, students seeking internships or jobs. And, you know, it really the, it's just really about job hunting as a creative exercise. You know, the idea that if you're really a creative person, you'll probably approach your job search in a creative way too. Um, I thought that this might be a little weird that Drogo 5 might not be super happy. Um, that, that, you know, it, it was almost sort of borderline stalking of Chloe that was going on here. Um, but you know, the, the videos were, were pretty lighthearted, so it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't sort of serious stalking, obviously anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously they, Ben and Jackie know, um, who they have to persuade. They know who their target market was and they, they persuaded her so that they, 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 you know, they have a, have a head start on, uh, various creatives in that sense. Do agencies, so Christina, oh, I just had a question. Oh yeah. Go ahead, Lauren. Do agencies have a, uh, choice to not hire interns that do this this though i mean my question after reading the story and stuff was left was like how how would droga look if they had not hired these interns like they didn't really have a choice yeah i know what you mean i mean i i'm not sure it would look too badly on droga if they just never replied because that's not really a, a, a newsworthy thing that they didn't reply but um, I think they recognize that when something like this happens, it's probably in their interest to kind of reach out. And I, I guess the problem becomes when you have a hundred people doing this, then then what do you do? But you know, good on them for good on them for uh, for thinking up this stunt and, and getting getting jobs. I feel like there's there's uh, we've seen stuff like this a few different times, and there seems to be kind of three responses that agencies take. One is uh, to just kind of be like, oh, that's clever, but you know. You know, keep at it, and maybe someday, you know, they just kind of are supportive without saying yes, we'll hire you. Uh, the other, you know, result is obviously they do hire them, but then the one that I feel like we've seen more often when they kind of 
don't respond or whatever is that another agency steps in and hires that, you know, that team and says, well, unlike them, we like this kind of creativity. Uh, So while I don't think there's any direct extortion in the sense of like, oh, if we don't do this, we'll look terrible. I do think there's some opportunism in it for the agencies that that, you know, swoop in and snatch up these people uh, on the side. But Christine has been kind of keeping an eye on these things because we've got our graduates guide for marketing and media coming up soon. And you've been looking at kind of ways that people get their foot in the door. I, I guess, how do you, I, you know, what is the lesson here? Because if it all becomes about stunts, then there's, you know, then you're not spending enough time really thinking about talent and about ability. But we're also in marketing, you know, so is the stunt in, in itself kind of proof of concept of your of your ability? I think it can be. I think it can also be dangerous to assume that someone can, you know, pull off any and everything when it comes to, you know, marketing just because they were able to get your attention with like a donut box. I don't know. Um, so far, I, I would I would imagine the lesson right now is like, for for students is to create something create some sort of stunt put it online keep going after it until you get your (laughs) internship but uh, you know um right now is a weird time and i think we're going to end up seeing that that you know tactic doesn't necessarily work you know maybe a year or two from now where someone's like all right i've i've seen enough of this like social media like you know, here's the weird thing that I did to get my job effort. But I don't know. We, yeah, I mean, Droga 5 is also probably, as an agency, Droga 5 is probably pretty open to this kind of thing. This is obviously an agency that's done, that kind of built its reputation on stunts way back in the day. You know, when they did that Mark Echo thing where they tagged, pretended to tag Air Force One with graffiti. And that was kind of their really first big campaign that they did that got tons of viral attention. So they, I think they they recognize and, and try to celebrate, uh, you know, kids that, that do kind of goofy stuff, mm-hmm. stuff that's a bit subversive like this. Well, definitely, uh, if you have uh, done something or seen something uh, that uh, hasn't maybe gotten coverage about ways that graduates or aspiring uh, employees are getting their foot in the door, drop us a note. We're at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And it is time to move on to my favorite part of the show. This is where Tim catches us up on the actual best ads of the past week. We call it Ads Worth Watching. All right, Tim, we got some great stuff this week. Uh, tell us uh, what you want to talk about first. Sure. Well, uh, keeping on with the Droga 5 theme, um, I'd love to talk about the new uh, New York Times campaign, which Christina actually wrote about. Um, series of ads broke last week, uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky, the Hollywood director. Uh, it's a continuation of this idea that was introduced uh, with, with the ad on the Oscars, The Truth is Hard, and it's kind of obviously aimed at uh, showing how, uh, how many resources go into producing news at the New York Times and, and uh, hitting back against fake news. And, you know, the ad on the Oscars was kind of text only. It was paired with some audio of current events, but it was really kind of stripped down. Um, these two two new ads came out last week. I believe there are several more coming. Um, these focused on the story, uh, stories narrated by Times photojournalists who are actually reporting on, on very difficult stories. Uh, one of them is from 2015, where uh, Tyler Hicks, the photographer with the Times, um, documented the arrival of refugees in Greece. Uh, from Syria. And uh, there was also a second ad a story uh, from Iraq. Uh, Brian Denton, a, f- a photojournalist for the Times, um, was actually in a convoy that was hit by an IED in 2015. 
So the ads are really cool. They're really well put together. Um, you know, going all the way back to Pi, Aronofsky has kind of had this really great ear for sound design, and these ads make really good use of that. Um, I guess before we describe them, maybe we just listen to a clip from one of them here. I see fear. I see desperation. But I also see hope. Thousands of people arriving every day. Just think about how bad it must be in their country that they would pick their families, their children, put them on a raft that barely floats, risking their lives to find a place to live. So, yeah, as you can hear from that, um, the ads use the sound of a shutter, almost like a framing device. There's a lot of silence in between. Um, there's the narration from the photojournalist, and the ads go through kind of one photo after another that, that these photographers took as they were there. And it's a really nice kind of really surprisingly dramatic way to tell the story. Uh, and the ads end up on the single photo that was actually published in the Times. The camera kind of pulls back and shows the whole story. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think what's notable about, about this campaign is really how visual, visual these ads are. You know, I think it's no, probably no coincidence that they focused on, focus on photojournalists to start here. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to visually depict, um, what these guys have gone, have gone through than maybe what regular reporters go through who aren't taking pictures. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a Wall Street Journal did sort of a similar campaign recently, um, where they, you know, they tried to tell you like what goes into reporting a story and, and one of them ha had a reporter who basically missed her friend's wedding over a weekend because she was holed up in the bathroom reporting on a breaking story and you know aside from being kind of depressing I thought that that campaign that ad in particular wasn't wasn't nearly as compelling as this so I think you know this campaign uh, great job by Aronofsky and Droga to, to kind of visually strikingly get across the point that the truth is hard and, and reporting is hard and uh, you know getting to the truth of the matter is you know, pretty difficult these days. Um, Christina, what did you think of this campaign? Well, I thought it was really smart not to like try and, you know, go back and dramatize what had happened, but instead, you know, use the images that these photojournalists had uh, taken and show the outtakes and show what it takes to get um, to, to the story and to, you know, um, being able to tell that story visually. Um, I also think it's smart. Um, it's just smart marketing to try and get people to understand what goes into journalism when, you know, people are often, uh, shouting about fake news, but they like have no idea the, the level, um, of work and dedication that it takes to to get the stories that they're reading sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and obviously, um, I saw some things on Twitter about, you know, maybe not using the audio of the shutter as much, but I, I really liked that touch. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with this campaign um, because there are, there are ways to dramatize like what a reporter does that's not... Um, that's not a photojournalist, but you know you have to be careful with that when you're trying to tell the story of like how the truth is put together. Yeah, it'll be more of a creative challenge to do it with non non photojournalists, um, but it could be that could almost be interesting. You know, th that kind of creative challenge could produce great work too. I guess we'll just have to see. I, I I thought what they balanced well is that I'm typically not a fan of when journalists kind of put themselves in the story. I think that's something you see a lot on TV is like, oh, this terrible thing happened and I was there too and it affected me. Therefore, I'm going to talk a lot about how it felt for me. 
I think that can be done really poorly. In this case, with Brian Denton describing, um, you know, what what it was like to, uh, you know, to survive a suicide bombing, uh, you know, while he was in an armored car. And I, I thought they just handled that really well um, in a way that, that to Christina's point, you know, at a time when people, it used to be just this lunatic fringe that was like, you know, Sandy Hook never happened, you know, all that's fake. And now you hear everyone saying like, everything is fake. Everything's a false flag. And to actually have someone describing, you know, I, I was hit by one of the explosions over the course of gathering this news. I think whether that's going to win over anybody who just doesn't trust the media, period, uh, it, it at least highlights the level of investment and, and you know, beyond just the money of just, you know, you're personally there to experience this. Uh, so I thought they handled that, that very well. I think it's also um, going to be a really big selling point for advertisers. I mean, we're recording this episode ahead of next week's new fronts and I am going to the Times presentation which coincidentally is the first of the week on Monday um, but the whole you know I've already got the invitation for it it's all around this theme of trust and I think we're going to get a little insight into how this campaign is going to evolve over the next year so it'll be interesting to see how, what the response is like for kind of for marketers and brands yeah, and it's interesting the backdrop too is like you know the, the surge in subscriptions to the times has has given them the money where they can do an ad campaign that actually reaches people you know so the whole thing's kind of cyclical in a weird way like the the struggle over the election is you know and and the d- debate over fake news is what's given them the money to fight back against that so that's kind of interesting too well what else do you have for us this week tim so another thing i wanted to talk about quickly was this dove campaign uh actually it's out of denmark uh, mindshare denmark had this idea for dove uh the unilever beauty brand you know as we know doves based its whole brand around real beauty and supporting women or real women and, you know, what Mindshare noticed was that their uh, image searches for the phrase beautiful woman on stock photo sites was, was pulling up very uh, homogenous, non-diverse, um, very fantasy-like, non-real images. And so what Mindshare did was um, they hacked Shutterstock, which is one of the main stock photo sites, uh, by taking their own photos of real women, what they described as strong, independent, and original women in non-stereotypical settings, and they uploaded these photos. Um, I guess you can upload them to your own images to Shutterstock and tag them. So they put the beautiful woman tag on all these on all these images, kind of as a way to to help change the search results. Uh, and of course, you know, lots of media companies, uh, including advertisers and their agencies, use these sites. And so, you know, perhaps this will change um, the actual media um, that people see in the real world too. So I thought this was pretty cool. The image, uh, the campaign was called Image Hack. And uh, according to the, the case study, it, it has been having um, some real-world effects. So I thought this was a pretty interesting way to kind of go beyond an advertisement and kind of extend extend the Dove brand message and maybe even get others to, to embrace that message uh, through their own, their own marketing. So I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, and then the last one um, is kind of a kind of a, an amusing one too. It's uh, it's I'm sure you guys remember the man boobs PSA last year. Um, this was the the spot that um, the agency David created for breast cancer uh, a breast cancer advocacy organization, and it played off the fact that um, mo- most social media networks don't allow uh, images of female nipples on their site. Um, those photos kind of get banned very quickly. And so what David did last year uh, with the Man Boobs campaign, they, they got around that by um, showing a breast check demonstration on a, a rather large male model. 
which was a very famous ad. You know, it was pretty clever. Very quickly went viral, like won a ton of awards. It was like huge at Cannes last year. I think it won like, it won at least one Grand Prix and it won like seven or eight golds or something. It was, you know, super, super popular. And uh, so now they've come out with a sequel and it's it's not as clever, um, but it's certainly eye-catching. It's got, uh, it's a it's a music video basically with, uh, with boobs that have mouths where the nipples should be and they're singing a song about how great boobs are and and um, it's hard to describe. So why don't we just listen to it? Um, the song is such a key part of it. So maybe we can play a clip of it here. Everybody loves boobs. All of the ladies, definitely the dudes. Just as sure as one plus one must always equal two. Everybody loves boobs. Breasts are the bestest. Some melons slip away. Some sit perch beneath the shirt and some on a proud display. Round and bouncy. Firm or lean. But Soms will always reign supreme. From chairwomen to dog walkers. Everyone's in love with knockers. Not everybody. Cancer hates us. So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously not quite as innovative as last year, um, but certainly fun-loving. Um, the tagline is, everybody loves boobs. Uh, and it was definitely an interesting moment in our editorial Slack channel this week when I requested a photo from everybodylovesboobs.com. Um, <laughs> there was definitely some some lolling going on on Slack when I, when I did that. I mean, it's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty funny. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's uh, David. David's had a pretty great year, honestly. Like they, they, they always seem to be um, like between their Burger King work and the stuff they did for Heinz with the with the Mad Men ads. I mean, they're they're sort of like the modern day like Crispin Porter, you know, like the using buzz and press, you know, to to advance a brand message, and um, it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, this, like I said, I don't think this was quite as clever as last year. Um, but certainly, you know, no, notable to say the least. I do wonder if it takes like advertisers, like mainstream advertisers to, um, really like push forward actual nipples and ads from women so that we're like destigmatizing this, this whole thing. Cause like still as like a human woman, if I'm like shopping for, you know, some sort of undergarment online, you'll see like all, all of women's nipples, they're just erased. It's its not there. And I, I kind of wonder if, like, to be able to, like, get past this conversation of Facebook is, you know, taking down all of these photos because of nipples, I wonder if, like, you know, it has to have, it has to be coming from, like, mainstream brands sort of being like, nah, humans are humans, and they, they have these body parts, and we're going to, like, stop Photoshopping everything out. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it seems like still taboo and like that that no big advertisers want to touch that topic. You know, like they're just not they're just not willing to fight that fight at all. It's kind of strange. Yo, if someone's going to fight that fight, email me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I I feel like like this is such an American issue, right? Like you go overseas, there's nipples everywhere. Like you'll you'll find plenty of nipples in in Europe. Uh, you know, and, and I would guess in South America and, you know, there's a lot of places where they're more accepting. The problem is the the companies at issue here are all based in the U.S. I mean, brands aside, it, what we're really talking about here is Facebook. You know, it's it's the, the large technical, you know, tech companies, but primarily Facebook and their morality is so, you know, their puritanical morality is really driven by the fact that they're based here. I mean, Lauren, is that an overgeneralization? I mean, it feels like 
like that's kind of why America is driving the decision on what is obscene and what is not and whether breastfeeding or whether nipples are, you know, considered taboo. Yeah. I mean, the problem with all all the tech companies is that they, you know, they find themselves in kind of this position a lot where it's, you know, how, how much do you act as a media company in terms of censoring stuff versus, uh, you know, the idea of having an open forum and Facebook in particular particulars really has a wishy-washy past in that space. And more often than not, they take the side of being an open forum versus being a media company, although that changes. Some days you can talk to them and they act like a media company. Sometimes they don't. So I think I think the tech companies are kind of in a weird space. And maybe if some, some big brands, those brands <laughs> change the discussion, then things might change. But I, they're, they're in kind of an odd position. Position. Yeah, I saw this woman who had posted this video, which I would send around, um, but to her actual point in this video, she's naked in it. Because um, she's naked and talking about how, um, you know, social platforms will take down that video like very quickly. But uh, when it comes to violence, like we constantly are sharing videos where, you know, even even small things where it's like someone is dressed up like a you know dinosaur or whatever and fighting another dinosaur or you know real world violence where people are bleeding out people share those videos very quickly they are on these platforms for much longer often than you know what you'll see when it comes to uh nudity it's interesting it's an interesting and v- to Griner's point, very American conversation. And, and from Abig's point of view, it's so cyclical, too, because when we published the story, I mean, the screen grab did not have nipples, obviously. It was it was like these singing boobs. But I, I asked David, I'm like, do you think Facebook's going to be okay with this photo? Because <laughs> we've had, you know, we've had... Uh, We've had stories taken down off of Facebook once or twice because of, you know, somebody complained about them. And so you have to be careful because you don't want your, you know, if you're a, a media company like ours, you don't want your Facebook account suspended even even temporarily. Yeah. Where's like Dove's Real Beauty campaign about uh, this stuff? I don't know. About real nipples. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Tim, as always, for rounding up our uh, ads worth watching. And now it is time to move on for our to our big discussion of the week. All right. Our cover story this week was The Power List. This is an annual list we do of 100 of the most powerful executives in marketing media and technology. Uh, I would say it's a spoiler alert to jump to number one, but since he's on the cover, I don't think it's much of a spoiler. Jeff Bezos, the CEO, chairman, president, founder of Amazon, uh, is our number one of the uh, most powerful on this year's power list. I guess let's just start there. Um, Lauren, do you think Bezos was the right pick? And if so, you know, what makes him more powerful in a word than, you know, say your Zuckerberg's? Yes, I do think he was an interesting choice, in my opinion, and I think we had some good ideas to back it up, mostly around the world that he is, when you look at the retail and commerce space, he is uh, the most powerful man in the world. You know, you've seen, we've seen so many retailers struggle in the past year, 
in terms of keeping bricks and mortar stores open, e-commerce stores open, and he really has his, his tentacles into that space and Amazon owns it. And I think the other interesting thing that he's done in the past year is I've been covering a lot of the his work with the Washington Post uh, and turning the Washington Post into a digital brand. I mean, this week I wrote a story about now they claim the Washington Post claims the ads load faster than any other digital publishers. Uh, so he's really taken kind of a kind of a digital mindset to that team, not only from the editorial side, but just uh, advertiser and business perspective as well. Yeah, I should clarify that he uh, owns the Washington Post, uh, and and uh, that's his connection there. He's you know he also has uh, I think it's called Blue Origin, a, a spaceflight company. I mean he is kind of. Uh, you know, I would say on par with uh, an Elon Musk in terms of how diversified his portfolio is, um, but crosses over a lot more into our stretches of the world, which is to say, you know, media, marketing, e-commerce, a, a lot of those aspects, which is why, you know, in, when we list the most powerful people, we tend to focus more on uh, people like him and Zuckerberg than necessarily a uh, an Elon Musk. Uh, Zuckerberg did come in at number two. Uh, and just to kind of round out the top five, number three was Larry Page, the CEO and co-founder of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. Uh, number four is Brian Roberts, the CEO uh, and chairman of Comcast, which includes NBC Universal, Universal Studios, MSNBC, Telemundo, obviously a tremendously massive media company. And number five was David Taylor, the CEO, president, chairman of Procter and Gamble, which obviously is is uh, kind of as big as it gets, and when it comes to major brand companies. Uh, and then uh, I, I'm just curious, uh, what are some of the names that jumped out at each of you, Christina? Uh, who are some of the people across the list, whether they were new people or just uh, ones that you were glad to see on there? I don't know if I would say glad, um, but <laughs> but Brian Brian Chesky I think is interesting because I wouldn't even be surprised if in like two years he had jumped many 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 like uh, ranks and it and is closer to. Number one, um, especially when you think about what he's trying to do is almost very similar to what uh, Bezos has done with retail. You know, he is trying to really revamp how people travel, what they do. And, you know, last November I was at this launch um, that they did for, you know, where they were revamping their whole app. They were talking about how they, you know, want to own experiences and have people do that whole sort of thing. All of their marketing has shifted. Um, Jonathan Mildenhall is is, uh, in charge of that. And, you know, I think it's going to be an interesting time to watch Airbnb and see what they're able to do, especially because, you know, with with Amazon, there are, of course, regulatory issues. But with Airbnb, the regulatory issues are much more uh, difficult to get around. Um, so I, I, I'm excited to see that. Um, I was very excited to see uh, Wendy Clark on the list. Um, She's she's brought in a lot of, you know, big wins for um, DDB. And then, you know, she's also um, she's also one of the like many Coca-Cola veterans like, you know, who went to the graduate school of marketing at Coca-Cola and learned from there. And, you know, now she's bringing that to DDB. So I I don't know. 
I, I'm excited to see what she does there. What, what about you guys? Well, well, one before I leave uh, you, I, I did want to ask about Indra Nui, uh, who is the CEO and uh, chair chair of Pepsi Company, mm-hmm. uh, was the highest ranking woman on the list. She came in at number eight. Uh, PepsiCo obviously includes Frito-Lay, Gatorade, Quaker Foods. I mean, it's a much larger company than Pepsi. But we did have a lot of internal debate about that um, and about whether or not – because, uh, you know, for those listening, um, we we did consider it at one point uh, – I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, so I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, we did have the United CEO on there. Um, he was he was quite low on the list. Um, but we did factor in kind of his uh, fall from grace in and whether – because he was so low on the list – Indra's a little different. You know, she is, I think the the belief internally was that she's much larger than these kind of temporary problems that Pepsi had. Uh, but, you know, do you think her her power, uh, Christina, slipped at all over the, the Pepsi Kendall Jenner kind of PR mess? I think it's easier to see how Brad Jakeman's power would have slipped over the Kendall Jenner mess. I don't know if I would necessarily say the same for Indra. I don't know if people necessarily think of her um, as quickly as they do um, with Brad Jakeman when it comes to like the the marketing, you know, the the ins and outs of like how the how these brands are marketing. I think when it comes to her, you're associating big picture Frito-Lay mm-hmm. Pepsi. So I don't know. Maybe a little bit, but not so much. Pepsi's uh, shares did not take a tumble as a result of the Kendall Jenner ad, just for perspective. Like, thinking outside of our bubble a little bit, Pepsi's doing just fine. The um, Tim, I wanted to ask you about uh, Martin Sorrell uh, is continues to be uh, considered the most powerful man in the advertising world. He is uh, obviously the uh, the head of holding company WPP, the largest uh, holding company. Uh, he is the founder, he's CEO. Uh, you know, and I want to say that the the number two uh, w- was John Wren at Omnicom, and I think he came in around number 16 or 17. Do You know, tell me about Mar- Sir Martin's kind of uh, standing. Like, his power goes beyond just the size of WPP. I mean, his stature in the industry doesn't seem necessarily tethered just to how big or how successful WPP is so much as him as a personality. Uh, but, but, I mean, am I wrong? I don't know. What's your take on what makes him the most powerful person in advertising? Well, I mean, yes, he's he's a great personality in the business. He, you know, everything he says it, it makes headlines. Um, but it is really, you know, mostly because his company is so huge and wields so much power. Um, you know, he's a mainstay at the top of these lists and has been for a long, long time. Uh, you know, what interests me this year was that Arthur Sedun is, is, was on the list for the first time, and he's the incoming CEO of, of Publicis uh, Group, and he, he, I believe he starts his gig very soon, maybe, maybe a month from now or so, I think beginning of June, so I think the Cannes Festival will probably be his big, first big sort of industry event. Um, really interesting is Maurice Levy, you know, the longtime uh, CEO of Publicis Group is retiring, and uh, Arthur, who's sort of been the heir apparent for a while. Uh, he was the he was the CEO of Publicis Worldwide for a while. Um, before that, Publicis Kansai, he's a Frenchman, um, left France for a long time, uh, actually built his own, uh, originally built his career in Chile, uh, created an advertising agency there, which he sold to BBDO, kind of stayed within the, the Omnicom network for a long time. I believe he, he worked for TBWA for, for many years. Uh, I believe he was the CEO of TBWA Paris. So he's clearly got the you know the pedigree. Uh, I think that, you know Publicis has struggled a little bit in recent years, um, 
and it's, Arthur's only 45, so I think you're going to see him, you know, f- for several decades. If, if things go well, he could be running, you know, the the, the fourth largest um, holding company in the world for, for decades. So very interesting to see him on the list, I thought. And uh, there are some other some other ad guys on the list, too. I think David Drogo is on the list um, and uh, a few others. So always interesting to see where the, the, the advertising agency CEOs fit into this power list. You know, everyone thinks of agencies as sort of supporting players, um, but, but Sorrel certainly is a, a force unto himself, as you say. And, uh, yeah, nice to see them kind of scattered in through, through, through these other uh, business CEOs. Lauren, tell me a little bit about um, who you who you see as some of the like less underappreciated power players in the in the tech industry that that are on this list. So we all think of Zuckerberg. Uh, I think a lot of people may think of Evan Spiegel, uh, who is on there. Um, but who are some of the other the other players that made the list that you you think wield more power than maybe the the average person might realize? I thought uh, Logan Green from Lyft. Is a, was a pretty inter, interesting person to put on there uh, in light of some of the PR issues that Uber has had over the past six months or so. Logan seems like a pretty uh, level-headed person with it. With a you know what Lyft is doing is interesting, and they're keeping up with Uber in a lot of different places. And uh, I just think he's an interesting person to look at when you compare it to who his competitor is right now. And Travis was on the list too, right? I think he was he like is. 70-ish, and I think Logan was like maybe around 90 or so, something like that. But yeah, there that's an interesting. I always liked it when uh, when Silicon Valley added the lift balloon to the opening sequence for like season yeah. two. Yeah, like bumping into the Uber balloon. The, yeah. <laughs> That was like the coolest opening sequence uh, tweak I've ever seen. I, I've been, uh, you know, not to sidebar, but I've been using Lyft uh, for the last few months and, uh, or, you know, maybe the last month or, or so. Uh, but it, it is a, a really nice app. I do like the fact that you can kind of tip the drivers as so you have a little more control over that uh, and, and just the aspect. And generally, I've been talking to each of the drivers um, and, and they, you know, almost all of them have driven for Uber previously or they still drive for it. And they all uh, had very glowing things to say about the way that Lyft actually interacts with the people in the recruitment process, in the development process, you know, that they just kind of treat you uh, well, uh, which is a, a vague thing, but they did give me some details. But it has been interesting just kind of comparing the, the two as someone who used Uber for a very long time. And I've been pretty happy with switching over. Uh, on the tech side, Lauren, another one that we see uh, that was new to the list. It was Safra Katz, the co-CEO of Oracle. Oracle is part of this trend that I'm hoping you can kind of help dumb down for uh, for people like me who who aren't necessarily cloud marketing geniuses. But uh, it, it Oracle is one of those players in this massively emerging space of cloud marketing. I mean, tell us a little bit about what that what that means. So, I think one of the easiest ways to understand cloud marketing and martech is when you think about ad tech to compare it everything that we've been kind of covering over the past couple months with ad tech is how how to better target ads what data comes from ads how you can slice and dice data to learn what people like whereas martech is all all of that minus advertising <laughs> so you know what people look at on a website 
how many pe- people subscribe to an email and kind of looking at data a little bit more holistically than necessarily only segmenting that to an advertising. Yeah, and kind of learning in real time, right? Like taking all that data processing and changing up your marketing kind of as it happens so that you're not sitting there waiting for the end of the quarter to go through a bunch of data reports and then be like, oh, okay, we should pivot our advertising. Like it, it a lot of that is now kind of factored into that software, right? Yeah, it's a little bit more real time and being able to get a quicker look at at data versus waiting couple months for reports to come back and that sort of thing. So I think we're going to be seeing more of those companies kind of rising to the top of these lists in the coming years uh, when you talk about who is powerful in marketing, you know, cloud marketing. It's a finite number of players. Uh, And so, you know, I don't know if it'll stay that way. Maybe it'll become even larger, but they are snatching up as many, uh, uh, you know, kind of startups and companies as they can to be, because you you don't want to be one of 85 cloud marketing services. You want to be one of three. Um, And and so we're certainly going to see that come up uh, even more. Tim, who else uh, on the list uh, got your attention? Uh, well, I have to mention Daniel Eck of Spotify. Um, Spotify is such a great brand. They're doing such amazing marketing. You know, we, we spoke at length on last week's episode about um, Pandora and, and their new campaign, but really it's it's Spotify that's doing sort of the grade A work. And yeah, beyond that, I mean, it's just so interesting every year to see kind of the old businesses mixing with the new businesses on this list. You know, there's so many sort of industry changing uh, brands on here, you know, sharing economy brands like like Airbnb and uh, and Lyft and Uber, they're all on here. And, and, you know, at the very top of the list, of course, you've got the the Googles and, and, and the, the Facebooks, but then you've also got Amazon, which is kind of a mix, fascinating mix of both. You know, it's like this old school kind of retailer, but, 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 but new school in the sense that, you know, they're, they're obviously their, e- their e-commerce uh, business was, was very pioneering. Now they're, they're a TV studio. They're, they're sort of everything they've got. They've got the echo now. They're sort of the leader in, in voice. And I mean, fascinating. I, I thought that was a fantastic pick for number one. Um, but yeah, just, you know, the, this mix of, of what the, what the new economy is all about, um, mixing with like the Johnson and Johnson's and the GE's of the world, which go back, you know, 50, 70 years. So pretty cool, pretty fascinating list to, as to take as a whole. I think the only one I kind of disagreed with, and it's not like I disagree, he shouldn't have been on this list, but, but it comes to the definition of the word power. Uh, at number 73 was Jack Dorsey, the CEO and co-founder of Twitter. Uh, I just feel like Jack is, is one of the, like, he's like uh, Frankenstein versus Frankenstein monster. I, I don't know if he actually has any power <laughs> over anything or if he just gets run roughshod by the users of his own creation. Uh, so I just kind of chuckled at that one because I'm just like, Jack feels like he can't do a damn thing to like fix Twitter or slow it down yeah. or stop it from I mean, being that brand, terrible. That brand still looms large though, doesn't it? Yeah. And you're, you're right about the power. Like what power does Twitter have these days? But <laughs> The brand is such a uh, cast such a shadow over the entire business these days. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you to each of you for joining the conversation. I, I encourage everybody to check out if you just Google Adweek Powerless 2017, you will find all 100 that you can browse through and uh, lots more articles uh, from this week's print edition on adweek.com. So keep an eye on that. Uh, our theme music is by Home. This uh, episode was produced by Christina Monlos. So thank you, Christina. And uh, we've got a few other things coming up soon. We 
we've got our uh, media all-stars, we've got our graduate's guide to marketing and media, uh, and we've got our MarTech superstars list coming up uh, to kind of continue this cloud marketing discussion and some of that that we talked about. So definitely keep an eye out for that. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you've not uh, given us a reviewer rating on iTunes, on Stitcher, on uh, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, please take a moment to do so. would mean a lot. And you can always reach out to us at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. I'm David Greiner with Adweek, and we will talk to you next week week.